Revolution. I am RJ Thompson, a writer, organizer, and activist with Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Thank you for tuning in. On this episode, join the Code Pink China is Not Our Enemy campaign to get a transnational perspective from Dr. Jun Xu, an associate professor of economics at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, CUNY, and Howard University. Dr. Xu previously taught at Renmin University in Beijing, and his research is focused on political economies, the Chinese economy, and economic history. Dr. Xu is the author of From Commune to Capitalism, How China's Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty. In the second half of the show, we will hear from Chris Hedges, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, Presbyterian minister, television host, and author of War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning, and numerous other books on empire, war, and poverty. In the news, last week, former Raytheon board member and current Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin continued to advance strategic clarity that the U.S. will help defend Taiwan in the event of a war with China. This breaks from decades of established U.S. policy known as strategic ambiguity. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives passed a package of seven new government funding bills that includes anti-China legislation. This legislation would ban Chinese companies from buying U.S. farmland, block funds for U.S. school lunch programs if they buy poultry from China, and bar any federal funds from going to projects or activities associated with China's Belt and Road Initiative. This week, by the biennial multinational talisman saber exercises concluded in Australia. The two-week exercises featured about 17,000 personnel from the United States, Australia, Canada, Japan, the UK, New Zealand, and Korea. Past versions of this exercise have damaged the Great Barrier Reef as these war games use live missiles within the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park and other environmentally and culturally significant areas. Now we are going to hear excerpts from an interview with Dr. Jun Xu, interviewed by Madison Tang, coordinator of the China is Not Our Enemy campaign, on his experience as an academic in both China and the United States, and on his analysis of the Western discourse surrounding Xinjiang and Hong Kong, two regions of China that the US government and mainstream media have become increasingly fixated on in the past three years in order to manufacture consent for hybrid economic military and informational war on China. Um, so where have you witnessed or experienced forms of racial solidarity in the US? 
one thing I I I feel uh, I'm very fortunate is that um, while I was working at Harvard University, um, I I always felt uh, this there's I never felt any kind of racism at Harvard with all my colleagues and students there. It's a I think it's a racism free campus. That's how I felt about it. Um, it's different from the let's say the the whiter part of the city of Washington D.C. Um, or you know surrounding Virginia or Maryland, um, and so it's a very definitely a very positive experience for me. I, I learned a lot from those uh, those people, um, and um, the uh, the kind of solidarity that I've experienced with this um, uh, the the uh, colleagues and and students at Howard is also. I think it's, it's, it's also uh, uh, great. I, one of the, the things that um, several colleagues, um, um, uh, including me, uh, we organized this conference um, uh, on Africa, um, West, the West and China's um, role in African development. Um, and there is um, what you know, people, when some people mentioned let's say China as a, uh, a new colonial uh, or imperialist force in Africa. Uh, one of uh, my students and, um, and uh, some of my colleagues at Howard, they actually, you know, they were, they were, um, they stood up and, and said, you know, this, this is not how they view uh, the situation uh, in Africa. Um, uh, they, they perceive the, uh, uh, the relationship between China and Africa in a different way. Um, so there is, uh, again, there, there, there are different, uh, it could be different conversation disagreements on exactly how do we evaluate different kind of relationship. But um, they were careful, I think they were very careful in not falling into the trap, and the kind of uh, uh, narrative that the U.S government was trying to promote that China is, I guess, the worst, um, um, I guess, even a colonizing force in Africa. Um, and it's something that African people should, should just simply, you know, fight against. I think they, they were very clear that this is not the, the political stance that they're taking. They are, um, they realize that this, there is an anti-imperialist uh, um, force that's going on, uh, and, and the Chinese relationship with Africa go went um, far back um, to the to the socialist uh, or early periods, which was quite different from the colonial relationship. So there's uh, lots of uh, conversations that I've had with my colleagues, and I I, I felt like um, we definitely had a good mutual understanding. Um, which was very different from, let's say, the mainstream, the U.S. politics. Thank you. That's amazing to hear. And um, hearing that the one place you didn't feel racism was in HBCU, um, to me, that makes perfect sense. And I'm just glad that you had that experience and were able to um, work there and kind of see this solidarity between histories of oppression um, from the American context in real time. And it's great to hear about that conference because yes, we do have this pervasive myth right now, especially in the West that 
China is this neo-colonial force. Um, it's a term being used a lot, especially in Africa. Um, so it's amazing that there's a space where um, there's pushback and there's a space for complexity of dialogue rather than just like extreme statements that are shutting down a, a conversation around nuance and complexity. Because um, as you stated, there's a lot of positive infrastructure development that China is helping with in Africa right now at very low cost loans. Um, thank you so much. So I also want to talk about um, a couple of things happening in China right now and the ways that you have researched that yourself, as well as some of the connections you have, because I know um, you still have many connections and may return to China. Um, so right now, we've been hearing a lot of information about Xinjiang, China, um, and allegations of human rights abuses, primarily by the singular source, Adrian Zenz, um, about accusations of genocide, um, forced sterilization, uh, forced labor, pretty extreme accusations that um, even the UN cannot corroborate. Um, so we're hearing that in the West from the US State Department, from politicians, from mainstream media in really just the past three years. If you look before the past three years, before the Zen's report, I don't think the average Westerner even knew where that city was or what region of China it was in. Um, so, and I also want to note that the study by Adrian Zenz is funded by the Jamestown Foundation, a Washington DC based conservative defense po policy think tank. Um, so he is funded by the US as he's doing this research. So you yourself have mentioned, um, Dr. Xu, how you have friends who live and work in Xinjiang and have you've done your own analysis to an extent on the conditions there. What is your stance on all of this information that uh, is coming out about Xinjiang right now from the Western Zen's perspective? Right, I agree um, totally uh, with your uh, evaluation of the situation that uh, this, the, the, all the conversation, all the, all the, um, uh, the reports uh, on, on Xinjiang only became uh, um, um, something that everybody knows in the last two or three years. Before that was a, um, a topic only for a small group of people. Uh, there's definitely some exile groups that uh, have been lobbying in Washington DC for years. Um, they got funded obviously by the US government and all kinds of donors. And they have been repeating the story for, 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 for a long time. Uh, didn't get much a, uh, audience, uh, but um, since the, a few years ago, the US mainstream media and the, uh, like the State Department started to uh, endorse uh, the kind of um, narrative, the kind of story, then it, it started to uh, became a more or less a mainstream understanding of what's going on in Xinjiang, which in my mind is very far from what um, has actually been uh, actually happened in, in Xinjiang. It's, um, 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 I think that when when you repeat the same kind of things a hundred times, a thousand times, in I guess in New York Times, um, it, it becomes difficult for people to say no because then um, you run the risk of being a genocide denier, and that is a pretty serious um, um, charge. Um, uh, I, I I I think that without 
uh, getting more information. Um, many people that I respect, they rather choose to be silent on this because you know they, they you know they without there's there's very limited information that we know that in the West about about Xinjiang and many of those were produced by people like Adrian Zenz and uh, his associates. Um, so if that's the on, that's the only available information here, um, um, there's very little that we can say. Um, I um, uh, I, th I think one of the things that um, you know I encourage everybody to do is obviously this has to wait until after the, the pandemic. Uh, is that they should um, 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 organize all kinds of research and study um, a field work in Xinjiang. Um, I don't think there is really actually much restriction on academic research. Um, there's some, I think there's some bad experience that, um, that the, the Xinjiang people had with, uh, like, with media like BBC. I think they um, really distorted what they uh, were actually seeing in Xinjiang that had a bad um, impact on, on how people perceive uh, foreigners or foreign media. Um, but overall, I think, you know, it's, it's even for, the, for the, the people in Xinjiang themselves, um, they def definitely needed a more conversation with people living outside China to, to know what's really going on in Xinjiang. And um, without that, it's hard to, let's say we cannot provide a point uh, by point debunk of all those, those um, the reports produced by Jamestown Foundation or, or Adrian Zenz, it takes, uh, you know, maybe takes days to do it. Um, but I, what I want to mention is that um, in the, um, the all sorts of um, the allegation that Xinjiang is experiencing um, a genocide uh, or a forced, la a forced labor, coercive labor, of all those kind of things, they were um, based on very, uh, I think, very limited uh, information and data. Um, and they, those, you know, they raised more questions uh, rather than provide a conclusive answer. Um, and there are many um, evidence that, that you can see from all kinds of sources from academic research from official documents that they uh, they, try, they they portray a very different kind of story in Xinjiang. Um, um, uh, the uh, for example the genocide story that uh, the there's I mean first of all the population increase um, in all the minority groups in Xinjiang have been relatively fast. Um, and uh, that has been, you know, even, I guess, even Adrian Sands wouldn't say no to that. Um, uh, they, it's, it's, but they also like to point out that, okay, so what happened after 2018? Uh, because after 2018, it seems that the, uh, there is a decline in population increase rate uh, among all the minorities. Uh, it, it's, it's, again, it's, we only have two years of data after uh, 2017 or 2018, um, but there is a there is a positive change starting from 2018 uh, that 
the uh, the government started to implement uh, uh, birth control uh, uh, more rigorously. Um, um, for example, um, when when China started to implement a very strict version of birth control, starting from the early 1980s, um, it was meant to be nationwide because there was a fear. I think it's a Malthusian fear that uh, China would um, just have too many people and it would be a burden to China and also the world. Um, I, I think it's the wrong understanding. But the policy at the time was tend to be very strict, extreme version of birth control, um, that every family can only have one child. Um, and, but the in practice, the policy uh, was um, implemented most rigorously with the majority Han population, uh, not so much with um, minorities. Uh, um, in theory, the minority families can have a bit more, two children, sometimes three children, depending where you live. Um, but in practice, um, the, the government um, um, didn't really put much restriction on how many children that the minority families can have. Um, so they can have a lot more than that, actually. Um, and that, it, it uh, actually has, as you can imagine, has generated grievances from the Han families. Uh, because that we only get to have one child, um, but you're not, you know, doing this fairly. Um, and starting from 2018, what I think the what the government um, implemented was that okay, let's you know let's really do what the 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 regulation, the law, uh, uh, you know, says. Um, for urban family, you can have two. For um, the people living in the countryside, you can have three or four depending on the specifics. Um, it is what uh, the, um, it is what the, the this, so it's finally uh, doing what they said they're gonna do um, from a number of decades ago, um, but it is, it can decrease the number of children that uh, minority families can have um, in practice. So that's what I understood that what could happen um, could have happened. I mean, it, well, it, it might have happened in Xinjiang. Um, but as I said, without further information, without further research on this, we don't know exactly, you know, what, what happened. You know, is that really a, a uh, such a decrease in population uh, growth rate? Um, I think we need more information. Well, uh, obviously for uh, um, uh, US propaganda, for people like Adrian Spence, uh, they don't actually need much research. Um, they, what they do is they try to find all kinds of things and just say, well, they, well, we need to produce this, this story and they try to fit the data to the story. It's the worst kind of research that any you know, scholars would do, but they are not interested in doing scholarly research uh, in any sense. So they're just trying to produce a story, a moral story that China has been doing such terrible things to the people in Xinjiang and that might, you know, all warrants uh, further actions from the United States, such as sanctions, which they already did. Uh, and it, it, and you, know, you hurt the uh, actual producers, cotton producers in Xinjiang um, and tomatoes. Um, and um, they did, 
didn't really care about what happened to those producers, the farmers that they were trying to, I guess, I mean, in the story, they were victims, but they were really victims of the US sanctions. Um, um, so yeah, I think they were just trying to create all kinds of excuses for, um, I think, abusive, uh, those imperialist policies from the US. Thank you. Yeah, it is ironic that uh, concerned uh, citizens in the US claim to want to be advocating for human rights and advocating on be the behalf of Uyghur ethnic Muslims in um, Xinjiang. But these sanctions, um, as well as like boycotts, um, companies like H&M and Zara, um, they're getting a lot of their cotton materials from Xinjiang. Um, it's actually going to harm the very people that they're aiming to ostensibly protect um, because you're going to be, you know, like uh, blocking the production and their right to make a living. Um, I think the idea that we could also just like increase the price uh, that we pay, you, you had mentioned that to me at one point, um, that could be even more helpful than just sanctioning and boycotting. Right. Right. Yeah. If the if the big corporations they're really so concerned about human rights, um, they really wanted to help the people, uh, hardworking people in Xinjiang, uh, or anywhere else. I mean, why don't they just um, decrease their profits and give more revenues to those people producing those cotton or tomatoes or any raw materials? Um, that would have a much bigger impact, a positive impact on people's lives in Xinjiang. Uh, like like Xinjiang, Hong Kong is also one of the uh, the issues that recently became um, uh, somehow important in the American politics. Um, um, there has uh, been, I think, uh, conversations. There's been um, collaborations between, let's say, different U.S. politicians and the uh, the uh, different activists uh, or leaders uh, from Hong Kong. Um, I, I, I think that um, uh, uh, to a large extent, the, um, it's not just insider or outsider. People living in Hong Kong uh, also may not have um, the, uh, uh, the, the best kind of uh, understanding of what has happened in Hong Kong. Uh, this is definitely the case for, uh, for major uh, social events, uh, social change in history that you when some individual living through a turbulent era may not have the best idea what's actually happening. Um, um, in, in the major social change, it could be a positive change, could be a reactive change. Um, an individual can be, um, can feel very differently uh, depending where, where they are, who they are. Um, yeah, but my friends who lived and work in Hong Kong uh, for some time, and um, they would, uh, they, I think for, throughout the, the so-called protest or this movement, they mostly felt um, worried, uh, terrified, uh, because they know, like many other uh, Chinese uh, who originally grew up in the mainland and then work in Hong Kong, um, they can be the next target. Uh, at, at, uh, uh, there is um, there is a very strong um, this xenophobic uh, nativist element 
in the Hong Kong movement uh, that uh, ha unfortunately has, I think, has largely dominated the whole thing, the whole movement. Um, so it's a right-wing uh, movement overall. Um, and they, you know, even before this whole thing became a, um, something that um, some U.S. politicians like to talk about, they already became some kind of nightmare for mainlanders um, in, in Hong Kong. Um, there, are, there are cases that they, um, you know, this, this local, let's say, activists, groups, or local militias, and they would chase uh, ordinary workers, um, uh, sex workers, uh, traders, little petty traders came from, who came from the mainland. Um, and it was uh, definitely, you know, this, the, this kind of sentiment was definitely not a very progressive one. Um, um, and um, on the, in the U.S., obviously, you know, there's, there are two, several layers on this issue. The one layer that uh, the U.S. politicians like to uh, look at, okay, this might create this and that other, other, uh, or another disruption. In, in China, um, in normal times, I think the U.S. elites are pretty collaborative with the Chinese government or Chinese elites. They have all kinds of projects together. But in a time when the U.S. elites, I think, felt uncertain, um, um, quite uncertain about their own status, quite uncertain about, about China, so to and they, I think they were more um, um, uh, supportive of some kind of disruption. Maybe not major change, but some disruption in, in, in China, including Hong Kong. Um, and so that's more like a geopolitical, uh, diplomatic way of thinking things. But um, uh, there is another layer, let's say, the, uh, some activists, some liberals, let's say, uh, in, in the U.S., they also feel sympathetic to the Hong Kong movement because they also, I think they are um, um, influenced, they were affected by the such long time of demonization of China. They felt like, okay, China is this, um, the Chinese government is such a bad one. It, it, it's, it's creating all kinds of troubles everywhere in, within China itself. Uh, in the South China Sea, uh, in Africa, and, and here in this formerly, you know, colony, British colony, Hong Kong. And they felt like, you know, uh, it's, it's something that they felt they could um, support this protest, this movement. Um, and uh, I, 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 there is also writers, um, I think more progressive writers, liberal writers, who try to write, who try to highlight the potentially more progressive element in the Hong Kong movement. But, but overall, uh, this, let's say, the anti-xenophobic, the more progressive part of, of this, uh, the Hong Kong movement is very marginal. There's not much space for a leftist movement in Hong Kong. We, we don't have to go into the details, but the Hong Kong history, the Hong Kong politics, um, has not left much room for, for, a, for a leftist movement. 
at least not for the last two or three decades. So um, it has been dominated by the right-wing forces and right-wing narratives. Um, and um, so the, uh, I think a, a better way of doing this is definitely uh, to critically evaluate what has happened in Hong Kong uh, by not siding with this right-wing movement or protests. Uh, but they, I understand that many people feel, feel hesitant because like, well, this is happening. This is social movement. Shouldn't we just join it? Maybe when we join it, we can, we can change it. But that, I think it's, it's, you can't, let's say, well, you can't join the, uh, uh, the Nazi party uh, to change the Nazi party. The whole, the base, the social base, the, the whole platform is, is given. You, 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 you join it you're going to become part of that. Uh, so I don't think that that effort has been uh, helpful at all. Um, and um, after the passing of National Security Act, I just want to mention that um, even though for many people in the US, it's like, oh, this is the end of Hong Kong. Um, uh, but for my friends who actually work in Hong Kong, they felt so relieved, they felt, okay, um, eventually, you know, uh, we're going to get some safety. Uh, we won't have to worry about, um, you know, being, being chased, being beaten. Our kids don't have to worry that much being singled out or being bullied um, by, by, you know, some, some of the right-wing people. Um, so it's a different kind of um, um, understanding of what's going on in Hong Kong. Thank you so much, Dr. Xu, for being here today for this conversation. Thank you for bringing in how, uh, how nativist and xenophobic the right-wing protests in Hong Kong are. And um, I'm very glad to hear that your friends were mostly safe and didn't experience any targeted violence. Um, but yes, we do know that in Hong Kong, the protests have been funded by the National Endowment for Democracy to the tune of $29 million since 2014. So there is a direct influence and we know that the leaders of the Hong Kong protests have aligned with Pompeo, Trump, Rubio, Cruz, lots of right-wing American politicians. So thank you so much for bringing that often um, untold um, context to those protests. Thank you so much to Dr. Xu and to our listeners. You can find Dr. Xu's book, From Commune to Capitalism, online or in booksellers nationwide. You are listening to Code Pink Radio, coming to you through Pacifica's radio, Pacifica Radio's WPFW in Washington, D.C., and WBAI in New York City. We'll be back after this break with Chris Hedges.
That was Speck City with the song Rushmonger. Speck City is an independent Filipina-American musician based in LA. You can hear her work on Bandcamp, Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Music, and iHeartRadio. Welcome back. I am RJ, a writer and organizer at Code Pink, and you are listening to Code Pink Radio, presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. Now we have excerpts from an interview between Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author Chris Hedges and our very own co-founder of Code Pink, Jody Evans. Hedges' book, Days of Destruction, Days of Revolt, examines poverty through different places in American history and is a potent reminder of the kind of class struggles that China has been working to eliminate and reduce as China recently ended extreme poverty in the nation of nearly 1.5 billion people. Unfortunately, PBS has been censoring the documentary here, depriving people in the US of important information on poverty reduction. You can join Code Pink's call for PBS to stop censoring the truth about China at codepink.org slash PBS underscore China. That is codepink.org slash PBS underscore C-H-I-N-A. And now to Chris Hedges. So can we start by talking about, you know, what you've seen around the U.S. war on China and your concerns? Just Well, we do have an enemy, uh, but to quote Carl Leibniz, it's the enemy within. It's the military industrial complex that has no restraint, no control, no regulation. Uh, it used to be that under the old Democratic Party, they would at least challenge certain weapon systems. They do not anymore. Uh, they, in fact, under Trump, got more money than they even asked for. And <clears throat> any society that allows a military to grow that powerful economically and politically uh, inevitably uh, lurches towards catastrophe. Why is a, an out of control military so dangerous? If you come out of the military culture, you are historically, culturally, and usually linguistically illiterate. You uh, believe in the myth of uh, whatever civilization, whether it's uh, German chauvinism in World War I or American exceptionalism, uh, and that chauvinism, that sense of exceptionalism, uh, the flip side of that is racism. Uh, it's about the denigration of the other, uh, I just actually reread uh, Edward Said's Orientalism, which is precisely about that. It, it, is, it is about, in order to create the mythology of whiteness, uh, Du Bois uh, writes about this, Baldwin writes about this, which is also, of course, a myth. Uh, you, 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 you take a racial characteristic and you endow it with uh, all sorts of virtues. It, it, these are completely fictitious. Uh, and, that, and then you set these virtues against the other. This is very much part of the military culture because in order to kill, uh, you must dehumanize. You must look at the other not as somebody who has your capacity for empathy, who uh, you, you turn them into an object. Um, and so the military culture is one that is uh, designed to speak exclusively in the language of force. You, you don't communicate any other way. Uh, you communicate through violence. And uh, because there's been no control and because we've eviscerated 
our diplomatic institutions. And when I, even when I was overseas, 40% uh, of the embassy was uh, military intelligence. And half the time, the ambassador didn't know what the CIA station chief was doing. Um, go back and read um, Stephen Kinzer uh, or uh, The Devil's Chessboard by uh, David Talbot uh, to see you know, what these intelligence service, what this uh, military uh, kind of intelligence industrial complex is about. Uh, it, it is uh, uh, one that has, not, not just now, but through ever since World War II engaged in uh, torture, <clears throat> extraordinary rendition, kidnapping. This happened under Dulles, Alan Dulles, uh, immediately in the immediate aftermath of uh, World War II. Uh, it, uh, it's not an intelligence gathering service as such. It seeks to overthrow governments, uh, Arbenz and in Guatemala or uh, Mossadegh in Iran, uh, Pinochet in Chile, et cetera, et cetera. So what we have uh, kind of been asleep at the switch on is this uh, military uh, complex with tremendous resources has created a ring around China the same way they have with Russia. Uh, uh, imagine if we had, uh, you know, the Chinese fleet off the coast of California or if we had uh, nuclear missiles uh, stationed uh, you know, within close proximity of the border of the United States. And if you look at the map, uh, John Pilger did a pretty good film on this a few years ago uh, called The Coming War with China. But if you just look at the map, whether it's Okinawa or outside of uh, Australia or the Marshall Islands, uh, China is completely ringed. And what they have done is create a kind of giant rat trap so that if there was a war, they can uh, shut down the, the shipping lanes uh, and uh, of course have uh, a nuclear capacity to obliterate uh, China. But let's be clear though. I mean, any nuclear war is not gonna just obliterate China. It's gonna obliterate all of us. Uh, most uh, scientists say that it would create a kind of massive uh, kind of black cloud that would uh, the entire earth would be covered in ice for one or two years. I mean, it's the end of human existence and, and, and the existence of most other life forms. Not that, of course, we're slowly getting there, not even slowly anymore through climate change. Um, but, you know, societies that can't control their military live deeply to regret it. Uh, and so that ethos, that dehumanization, that celebration of fictitious virtues of the white race or whatever imperial race it is your blessing, which is usually white, uh, is uh, one by the lens by which they look at the entire world. So they don't actually know anything about China. Uh, the, you know, nationalists always look at other uh, people uh, and see themselves. They see their own lust for violence. They see their own prejudices. I mean, you know, I had famous kind of battles with Christopher Hitchens uh, and uh, Sam Harris after 9-11 uh, over these same issues. So, I mean, here you, I spent seven years in the Middle East. I was the Middle East bureau chief for the New York Times. I'm an Arabic speaker. These people don't know anything about the Middle East. They don't, but they don't believe they need to know anything about the Middle East. They don't, and this is what's happening with China. Also Russia, I mean, we talk, the, the, the difference is China's a harder target because there's so much manufacturing in China. That doesn't mean that 
you know, we won't, the, the military, which has no restraints, uh, we won't be led into a conflict, which I pray to God won't happen. Um, Russia's an easier target. I mean, militarily, compared to the United States, uh, you know, Russia is the Alabama National Guard. I mean, Russia just, just didn't even have a military of any potency. Um, but the United States encroachment on China is, parallels the encroachment on Russia. I mean, the whole Crimea issue is really centered around the fact that the United States wanted to establish a base, a naval base in the Crimea and control the Black Sea, with things we would never permit to happen in our own geographical proximity. So um, the, the, the fact that the military is so awash in funding and is so unaccountable and uh, because of the nature of the military itself, uh, the United States military has become an, a phenomenally dangerous entity, not only to global world peace, but to American democracy itself. And the Biden administration isn't going to take on the, at this point, the, the defense contractors. I mean, look, we have 20 years in the Middle East of endless war, which have been a complete catastrophe, uh, certainly uh, first and foremost to the people in Iraq and Afghanistan and Syria and Libya and everywhere else. Uh, but it's just been an utter failure. I mean, it is, uh, it, it, and yet nobody's held accountable. All the, all the generals all get promoted. And then when they retire, they all go to Raytheon and and then uh, after uh, a new administration, they go from Raytheon back to the Defense Department. It's utterly incestuous. Uh, every uh, cruise missile, I believe, costs about a million dollars. So, you know, let's drop, how many cruise missiles did we drop on Libya? Quite a few. And then they make more. Uh, I mean, that's, it's, there's, no, there's no rationale to continue these uh, conflicts, except that war is a business. Uh, they, they make a lot of money. Um, so yes, I, I think you're, you're right, to, and I worry about it, because you don't want foreign policy left in the hands of, of generals, and uh, because they will, they will do what they're trained to do, and that is uh, inch you closer and closer to a conflict, even if that conflict is suicide. Yes, thank you. That was awesome. So, you know, there's this problem. <laughs> it's like my, my last question to you is, why do people believe these lies that drive us to war, even in the face of losing the Korean War, losing the Vietnam War, and losing, you know, $5 trillion and how many lives in, in your lifetime in, you know, the Middle East? Why would we, um, why would we believe more lies? Because it's self-celebration. I mean, if you look at 9-11, it was a celebration of us uh, and our power. And especially in given the breakdown and decay within American society, suddenly you're all united. It's a kind of false camaraderie, uh, but you're all uh, one in this great uh, battle. So uh, when I was uh, very vocal about my uh, my calls not to support the invasion of Iraq, uh, I would come into the New York Times and the phone messaging system on my phone would just be filled with death threats and hate messages until they'd run out of space. And why? It, it's because I was challenging uh, 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 self-identification. I was challenging uh, that whole existential notion of us as a virtuous, great 
powerful people that a lot of alienated people who had been discarded by capitalism needed uh, and, and imbibed it to give themselves a kind of sense worth and a sense of belonging. So that's why, and it always works. Uh, and it, you know, it's, uh, there's a good book by Samuel Hines, who was a Marine Corps pilot in uh, the South Pacific in World War II, and then went on to teach literature at Princeton. He was actually my neighbor uh, just down the street. We lost him a little while ago, uh, called A Soldier's Tale. And it talks about that trajectory. Uh, of course, I mean, war is always about betrayal, betrayal of the young by the old, betrayal of uh, soldiers by politicians. Um, uh, but it works, and it works uh, especially for people who are disenfranchised. My own family comes from Maine, lower working class. They're all, they were all in the military, all of them, uh, including my grandfather and uh, my uncle who fought in the South Pacific and was destroyed by the war. Uh, but every generation, especially when you come out, and, and we have to remember that the military, because there's no draft, uh, these middle-class kids, upper-middle-class kids, they don't go into the military. I mean, these, these elite schools, uh, Princeton's down the street, I've taught at Princeton, they're not going into the military. Uh, and and I, I will get out to some of these community colleges that I speak to, I was at, at in Northern Minnesota, uh, I forget the name of it, Manitoba State or something, but the professors were telling me that the uh, military has the ability to come in and get the transcripts of the students and they know who's gonna flunk out in real time and they show up at their door. And of course, in that area, there's a lot of indigenous, a lot of native Americans and uh, they're sucked right into the military machine. Um, so uh, you, you, what you're by, the reason it works is because it's a self exaltation, very sick self exaltation by the society. And it is effective, particularly with those people who feel alienated and vulnerable within that society, and they will react to you with a kind of violence when you challenge that, because for many of them at that moment, that's kind of all they have. Whoa, so also, um, you know, we, we just watched what happened on January 6th and you've, you talk about the, you know, the wars inside. I mean, that's fueled by the military because a lot of, you look at the leaders and a lot of people were there, that's, those are people that have been to war. Yeah, well, you go to war, you get damaged, all of us. I can carry a gun, but I got damaged like anybody who spent a lot of time around that industrial violence for prolonged periods of time. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, there a lot of those people are damaged. I teach in a prison. How many prison guards, most of them, a huge percentage of the prison corrections officers were in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, and of course, it's a great job if you come back filled with PTSD and a lust for sadism. Uh, it's, you'll probably get promoted. Uh, same thing with law enforcement. Uh, so uh, yeah, you, you are creating a, a damaged underclass that gets sucked into uh, the, those positions, whether it's the police or the prison system, where they do the dirty work for uh, empire uh, internally. So yes, you're right. There were a lot of those people were vets. I mean, it was fascinating, especially watching the, the, when they breached, when they all lined up and they were wearing Kevlar uh, equipment, uh, and it, they clearly had been trained. They knew exactly what they were doing. Uh, and that is, so because when they come back, of course, they're thrown right back into the same 
uh, you know, they're, 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 despite all the rhetoric, uh, and this has always been true with war. I mean, so they go right back into these uh, decayed communities where there are no real jobs. Uh, that's why the suicide rates are so high. And most people, you know, Americans don't speak other languages. They, uh, they, they are uh, not well versed the way Europeans are uh, in other cultures. Uh, and China is uh, very easily caricature, you know, becomes a caricature. It's very easy to turn it into a caricature. I would do the same thing with Russia, of course. Uh, but you know, why is NATO expanded up to the border of uh, Russia? Well, because all of those former, and we had of course promised Gorbachev that we would not extend NATO beyond the borders of Germany. We, we totally, uh, it was total betrayal on the part of the United States. Why? Because it's billions and billions and billions of dollars in arms equipment. I was in Warsaw a while ago. I got in the airport, there was a giant billboard uh, saying uh, from Raytheon, Raytheon working with the people of Poland or something like this. Uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a way to make money. It's these are the merchants of death and, uh, um, and we can't control them. We don't control them anymore. Uh, and that, that's why it's so dangerous. Well, and, and the interesting thing is they're about control, but they, can't, they, they, they think war can control something, which war is the opposite. It's, it's full on chaos and they've failed at that constantly, but they keep in their minds thinking they're gonna control something with war. So, okay, um, then, you know, we have to do more. I mean, because basically we live in a war economy culture yeah. Um, and so we have to divest ourselves because we ourselves are sucking at the tit of the war economy culture and we don't yeah. know it, thinking that it's life when it's destroying everything. So, um, okay, so see fear and, and educate instead and, um, and step outside of the madness of what it is to be um, in the United States of America. That's always doublespeak, right? Well, and understand that we do have an enemy. And it's called the Pentagon. Okay. The the the, the most uh, destructive force to not only global peace but American democracy. Leibniz was right about that. Leibniz said that at the on the eve of World War One. He said the German military will destroy this country, which it did. And the an an unregulated uncontrolled, unaccountable military machine of this size will destroy us and, and perhaps even the very planet that gives us life. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Shu and Chris Hedges, and thank you for tuning in to Code Pink Radio this week. To take action with the China is not our enemy campaign this coming week, to help prevent further escalation of an existentially threatening U.S.-led hybrid war on China, please go to codepink.org slash Eagle Act to sign our letter to Congress asking that they vote no on the multi-billion dollar military funding bill, H.R. 3524, the Eagle Act. That URL is codepink.org slash E-A-G-L-E-A-C-T. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI in New York City and WPFW in Washington, D.C. 
Code Pink Radio is an energizing program focused on ending wars and militarism and building a peace economy. Listen weekly to robust conversations and inspiration from grassroots peacemakers in places like Korea, Yemen, Venezuela, and Iran. Peacemakers in our nation's capital who are confronting war hawks in the White House and in Congress, and peacemakers in our communities who are modeling the actions of what a world of peace can look like. You think they're foes, they're in business together Daddy Bush knows the Carlisle Group Since years before, been raking in billions And itching for more It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink It's blood for oil, we know there's a link They say Code War, we say Code Pink Code Pink for freedom Code Pink for peace Code Pink to hunger